This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But we're also on almost every podcast platform as well as YouTube and Odyssey. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, and subscribe. We give people a better understanding of these organizations. We learn how they're funded, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Remember, your donations are tax-deductible. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique viewpoint and perspective around how they tell the story of their communities how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they've created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. We've got a very special episode today. It's one I've been looking forward to a lot. We're going to focus on a person, a scientist, who saved over a billion people across the planet from starvation. So for this episode only, we switch from reviewing historical events and birthdays and instead turn our focus to food availability around the world. Trust us, this one-time only change will make sense as you listen to the rest of the episode. According to a 2021 report from the World Health Organization, quote, There was a dramatic worsening of world hunger in 2020, the United Nations said today, much of it likely related to the fallout of COVID-19. While the pandemic's impact has yet to be fully mapped, a multi-agency report estimates that around a tenth of the global population, up to 811 million people, were undernourished 
last year. The numbers suggest it will take a tremendous effort for the world to honor its pledge to end hunger by 2030. From the same report, a section entitled The Numbers in Detail, Already in the mid-2010s, hunger had started creeping upwards, dashing hopes of irreversible decline. Disturbingly, in 2020, hunger shot up in both absolute and proportional terms, outpacing population growth. Some 9.9% of all people are estimated to have been undernourished last year, up from 8.4% in 2019. More than half of all undernourished people, 418 million, live in Asia. More than a third, 282 million, in Africa. And a similar proportion, 60 million, in Latin America and the Caribbean. But the sharpest rise in hunger was in Africa, where the estimated prevalence of undernourishment at 21% of the population is more than double that of any other region. On other measurements, too, the year 2020 was somber. Overall, more than 2.3 billion people, or 30% of the global population, lacked year-round access to adequate food. This indicator, known as the prevalence of moderate or severe food insecurity, leapt in one year as much as in the preceding five combined. Malnutrition persisted in all its forms, with children paying a high price. In 2020, over 149 million under fives are estimated to have been stunted or too short for their age. More than 45 million wasted or too thin for their height. A full 3 billion adults and children remained locked out of healthy diets, largely due to excessive costs. Nearly a third of women of reproductive age suffer from anemia. Globally, despite progress in some areas, more infants, for example, are being fed exclusively on breast milk. The world is not on track to achieve targets for any nutrition indicators by 2030. Now, this is from a report by the United Nations. The report is called Pandemic Year Marked by Spike in World Hunger. According to a website called theworldcounts.com, under the Global Challenges selection, it says, quote, Around 9 million people die every year of hunger and hunger-related disease. This is more than from AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. Of the 822 million undernourished people in the world, 113 million face acute hunger, meaning they are in urgent need of food and nutrients. The number of people affected by hunger has decreased by 189 million people since 1990. But in recent years, the positive development has stopped. Since 2015, we have seen an increase in hungry people globally every year. A couple of interesting facts. You can find this on the interwebs. There's a 2009 hunger map, which shows that in 2009, there were a billion hungry, starving people. And then I found a hunger map of 2019, which puts it at 821 million people. So it's gone down. Africa is getting better, or was getting better. But evidently we've stagnated. Let me get a drink of tea. I love Twining's tea. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms, Facebook, YouTube, and Odyssey. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll be meeting with the Muscatine County Genealogical Society located in Muscatine, Iowa. 
The Muscatine County Genealogical Society was organized to assist individuals in their genealogical research. It's a nonprofit organization whose aim is to foster an interest in genealogy, gather and preserve genealogy and historical data. It'll be fun and interesting chatting with Mike Waddell, the vice president of the society. For this episode, we greet Tom Spindler from the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation located near Cresco, Iowa. So who is Norman Borlaug? Well, all of that background I just gave you about hunger will help you understand. This man is credited with saving the lives of over a billion human beings on this planet. Dr. Borlaug lived from March 25, 1914 to September 12, 2009. For just a moment, imagine our world without advances in agriculture, causing plant yields to double or triple, and plants that are disease resistant and that can thrive in diverse climates across the world. Without these advances, Many millions of people would starve to death because there would not be enough food. Today we're going to learn about a great man, Norman Borlaug. He has been called the forgotten benefactor of humanity. Upon his death in 2009, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization described Dr. Borlaug as a towering scientist whose work rivals that of the 20th century's other great scientific benefactors of humankind. And Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, said, As we celebrate Dr. Borlaug's long, remarkable life, we also celebrate the long and productive lives that his achievements have made possible for so many millions of people around the world. We will continue to be inspired by his enduring devotion to the poor, needy, and vulnerable of our world. Have you ever heard of Dr. Norman Borlaug? Well, if not, we'll resolve that issue for you in this episode, so stay calm and listen on. The Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation is dedicated to the preservation of Norman Borlaug's birthplace and boyhood farm sites and to promoting, through education, the life and legacy of this great man. They are focused on Dr. Borlaug's early upbringing on the farm sites and his amazing life story that resulted in being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize the Congressional Gold Medal, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and his statue being placed in the Statutory Hall of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the Foundation has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the Foundation sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. Today we greet Mr. Tom Spindler, the curator of the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation. Here's a brief biography of our guest. Mr. Tom Spindler is past president, property manager, and education coordinator for the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation near Cresco, Iowa. He's been a member since 2005. Tom currently cares for the birthplace and boyhood farms of Norman Borlaug gives tours and coordinates education programs called Inspire Days for fifth graders. From 1975 to 2007, Tom was an elementary teacher in the Howard Winnesec District in Cresco. He then spent 11 years as a teacher guide for school groups traveling to Gettysburg and Washington, D.C. as part of America's Heritage Tour. Tom's passion is sharing Norm's incredible story to all who will listen, and we are honored to have him. 
Welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you for being here today. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, can you tell us something about Dr. Borlaug's life, his contributions and history? Well, certainly. I'm so impressed with what he did. So I'll gladly do that, and you'll have to stop me if I get too long. But Dr. Borlaug, as you may, may have said in the uh, preview, that he has received countless awards, you know, like the Nobel Peace Prize and the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. His statue is in Statuary Hall in, the, in our United States Capitol building. And so he's won numerous awards, but we got to kind of take it apart a little bit and tell you who he was and then how he came to be uh, this, this man that is so uh, revered around the world. So basically, Dr. Norman Borlaug was a, an agricultural scientist, a, a plant pathologist that was sent to Mexico to work with wheat. And then through his work, he certainly had traveled the world and, and that's what he's known for. But I think uh, just to kind of get started, I think we need to go back and look at his life growing up and how he came to be this boy that grew up on a farm to this man that changed the world. And so I guess the best thing we can do is go back and give you his background and his beginnings and kind of give you a, a little insight into how he became the man that he became. Starting out, you know, Norm was born in Northeast Iowa on a, on a farm in Howard County, Iowa. It's uh, near the town of Cresco and Protovan in the Northeast part of the state. Just to give you a little background of our land that we have in Iowa, uh, for those that are not from Iowa and don't know very much about it, Iowa is a very fertile ground for growing crops. You know, when you're traveling through the state, you'll see lots of corn and soybeans. It's a very green countryside as you're traveling across the state. And so much of it is flat and rolling hills and things like that, that are part of where Norm grew up. And since we're talking about agricultural scientist life, you have to start with the soil. And so that's where we should start is that Iowa is this fertile ground, the breadbasket of the world, some of the richest farmland anywhere in the world. And this is where Dr. Borlaug got his start. So it all began, you know, he was born in 1914 on a small farm to his parents, Henry and Clara. He was the oldest of three kids. And he was born in this house that we now have on our property. The, the foundation has, it's, and we call it the, his birthplace house. He was born upstairs in an upstairs bedroom. He would then move with his family to another farm site about three quarters of a mile away through some fields, which they purchased, Henry and Clara and the small children purchased this 106 acre farm nearby in the early 1920s. After that, they built a, a house that they ordered through the Sears catalog. You could uh, order houses through catalogs at that point. Yeah, and it, cool. Everything came in the railroad. It cost like $1,000 for this house. It's a square building, probably 25 by 25 or so, two stories with a roof, but uh, it came with everything. It came with the shingles, the windows, the doors, the flooring, everything except for the plaster that went on the walls. So that's where they got started on this very simple farm. They built a barn later on. From there, they began farming. It was a subsistent living at best when, you know, when you think of when Norm moved to that farm site in 1922, when he was eight years of age, you were there on that farm site and you didn't really go very far from that farm site. There were little communities of immigrants as Iowa was populated and became a state in the 1840s and then on as so many of the pioneers that came from the east to the west 
they settled in areas that were pockets of where the same nationalities of where they came from. And so uh, Norm being from a Norwegian family, they all gravitated to this Norwegian region of Saudi, this little community. And there, that's where they put down their roots right there. And this farm site that they farmed was unimproved. Of course, this was in the early days of the pioneers. If you go back to like uh, when you hear about Laura Ingalls Wilder and those books there, and uh, plowing up the sod and all those labor-intensive uh, work that it involved. And so they had to work on this farm. And it was mainly the field work was done by Norm and his father, Henry. And they farmed with horses. And that's the way it was. You know, and so the girls, he had two sisters, Palma and, and Charlotte. They would be helping their mom with the, the house chores, but also the taking in the eggs and things like that. But Norm was tasked with helping his dad uh, with the field work, whether it was cultivating or plowing or taking in the crops in the fall. And they did this all with horses. And so it was a labor-intensive job at that point in the 1920s. So he was raised to farm. He did get to go to school and his sisters at this one-room schoolhouse. It was about a mile away. You got to take yourself back to the early days of Iowa, when it was settled, they had to put one-room schoolhouses about every two miles away from the nearest family so that the kids could walk to school uh, in the fall and in the spring, and they, even in the wintertime, for that matter. And this is back before there were established gravel roads or paved roads or anything like that. It was just, it was paths and traveled by the the horse and buggies. And so Norm went to this one-room school. His dad and his grandfather and aunts and uncles all had gone to the same school. To give you a little background of that, the one-room schoolhouse, it was built in 1865. And so I tell school children that come to the farm to see where this great man came from, you know, I ask them, what happened in 1865? And many of them know that there was the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And I said, just think about that, that the, the people that built that schoolhouse were probably talking about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So that's uh, pretty incredible to think of. And so by the time that Norm went there in the 19, early 1920s, 1922, that school was already 70 years old or 60 years old or so. So it was already old and needed to be replaced and it would be replaced many years after he was gone. So he went to this one-room schoolhouse, and in those days, those boys and girls would go there through their eighth grade. It was first grade through eighth grade. And then at about the time that that would be done, it was time for the boys especially to go back to the farm and help their fathers and their parents to do the hard work uh, raising crops and animals so they can sustain themselves on the farm. They didn't go very many places. You know, there was no cars and roads that were established that you could go very far away. I know that Henry, his father, would go to the big town of Cresco, which is 14 miles away, a couple times a year to get supplies, go to where the railroad was located and uh, bring things back. Norm tells a story in one of the books that I've read that Henry came back one day with this new technology that uh, was the beginning of the transformation of their life because it was their life right there was stuck on the farm for the most part. Well, Henry came home one day with a battery-operated radio, oh, cool. an Atwater-Kent radio. And this radio, they hooked up to a little mini windmill that they put on top of the house, uh, the wood-shingled house. 
and they ran a cord down in through the window of the house. And then that would hook up that wire and the windmill would then turn and charge and that electromagnets or whatever that would charge the batteries that were those tube fills. And they could tune in and listen on the radio to the news of what's going on, whether it was in Des Moines or if uh, they could tune into WGN in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they were able to find out what's going on in the world here and now, which before they might get a newspaper or a magazine that would tell them some of the things that were going on. He remembers and tells the story of how he listened to the Chicago Cubs on WGN radio and how he says that just opened up their world, first of all. And, you know, to hear these people are stuck on the farm, they're doing their day to day jobs to make sure that they could survive. And here, this, this world opened up to them with this radio. So anyhow, Norm goes on to keep working with his dad and his sisters too, and and finished his eighth grade education. And at that point, you know, it's time for Norm to come back and to become that laborer that's going to be able to help his dad and probably eventually would take over himself and become a farmer and go from there and raise another family. But there was a couple things that happened that changed that course of his life. His cousin, Sina, was his teacher in school, and she was his teacher when he was in seventh and eighth grade of those years. Sina was about five, seven years older or so, and Sina saw something in Norm that really said that this guy could really do something with his life. And so she went to his parents in that Sears home and toward the end of his eighth grade year and said, Henry and Clara, you need to send Norm to high school. You know, he's, uh, as an academic, he's not in no great shakes, but he's got a lot of grit and determination. And Henry and Clara had been raised and gone to those one-room schoolhouses themselves and didn't have that opportunity to go on to high school, but they believed in education. And so they agreed. But now you got to realize Henry is the only boy and he's got two sisters, but they're not going to go out there in those fields. They're yeah. not going to do that hard labor intensive work. And so this is a great sacrifice for Henry. And I don't know the time frame of it, how it all happened, but there were a couple things that happened to make this possible for them to go ahead and say, yes, he can go to high school. Back and this is in 1929 when he's now done with his eighth grade and he's, he's going to either work on the farm or he's going to go to high school. Well, Henry and Clara, I don't know if they were very frugal, being Norwegian, that's probably uh, part of it, but they had saved money, evidently, and they probably went in with their relatives that lived in the area on other farm sites, and they bought a tractor. The tractor was like a horse, only you could just feed it with uh, gasoline, and it would go all day, and you wouldn't have to brush it down at the end of the night and give it its oats. And so that was one of the big things, that now Henry could get on that tractor and use equipment instead of walking behind those two workhorses. And it made it possible that maybe he could send Norm into a nearby town to be able to have high school education. Norm could come back on the weekends, and of course, he'd have all summer to work there too. And then the other thing that happened, the other technological advance that happened was that they got a car. Now, how they were able to save up to be able to have a car and a, and a uh, tractor. And then the Great Depression was hitting too. Right. You know, there was a lot of things that converged here. And so they were able to say, okay, you can go to high school. And so they 
they sent him to uh, Cresco, which is 14 miles away. And back in those days with a little Model T or A or whatever they had, you know, that's that's like a, going 100 miles. So uh, on dirt roads, too. In the wintertime, it's not a good time to go on dirt roads in Iowa. Right. So uh, he he went to Cresco. They would take him into town. And then he boarded in town. And there's a house that was just near the high school so that he was able to stay there during the week. And then they'd come and get him. And then he'd go back for the, the weekend to help uh, Henry and, and do his chores on the farm. What a commitment so they those, made to him, you know? Yes. Well, and just the time that this all happened, the radio, the tractor and the car, all those things had to happen at the right time for him to be able to, to make this way to high school. Yeah. And so he then went on to high school. His favorite classes were the science classes and agriculture. There was an ag class taught by a young man, Schroeder, that showed Norm about in this little experimental field in the high school about uh, you know that you could take these corn plants that he had planted and you fertilize it and how it really helps the corn grow so much better. And so this was his first exposure to like a nitrogen type of fertilizer. Of course, they put on manure from the fields or out in the fields from the animals they had on their farm, but this was a big thing. And of course, this is also at the time that Hybrids were starting to come in, developed by Henry Wallace, who would later become the Department of Agriculture secretary, but also then would become vice president of the United States under uh, FDR. All these things kind of came together. He saw that there was hybrid corn, and this is something they hadn't done in the farm. Think about in the farm, what they did with their crops. All the crops that they raised on the farm were for to feed the animals. So the animals they had, they had chickens, they had pigs, cows, and and calves, uh, and their horses. And all of that food that was grown out in those fields were not for them themselves. It was for their animals. And so what they would do with their crops, like for example, corn, they would take the biggest ears of the corn plant and realize, oh, these are the best, you know, they've got the most kernels on them. And so they would use those and, and dry those ears out and take the, the best ears that they had from that harvest and they'd separate them and, and then they would plant those the next year to uh, get hopefully bigger, bigger corn crops. And so that's what uh, they did in those days. And that's what, you know, Norm saw this, this new hybrid version that was going on. And that was a big thing. So Norm finished his high school. He, he loved sports. He loved baseball. He was saved later on in life. They asked him, uh, you know, a, a reporter asked him one time. So Dr. Borlaug, if you had anything to do over again, what, what would it be? He says, I'd be the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs. You know, so he, he loved playing baseball. They had, a, they had a little town team in Saudi, the little Norwegian community, and they'd play the Czech community at, at Spillville. And uh, so all these little pockets of immigrants that came to certain areas, they would play each other in baseball. They didn't have that in sports in uh, high school, but he did play football. And then he really took up uh, wrestling, which was so important to him. He says the things that he learned in wrestling were, were just that hard-nosed approach, mental toughness, self-discipline. And he says, I use that every day when I was working in those wheat fields in Mexico. So all of the lessons that he learned on the wrestling mat and in team sports, he says that he learned teamwork, 
he, he learned that in the one-room schoolhouse. He'd learned teamwork because the older kids would teach the younger ones and the younger ones looked up to those older kids and they knew that it was all this sense of community. So all of these things kind of formulated in Norm's mind and the things that made him tick. And so from that, he was getting ready to possibly become a teacher. He thought maybe this is the way he should go, be a science teacher, and maybe he could be a coach. So he was all set. He was getting ready. He was out of school, but uh, he was going to wait a year, save up some money, and then go to uh, what in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is now uh, the University of Northern Iowa, but back then it was Iowa Normal School. And he was set to go there and, and become a teacher and a coach. And he, his mind was changed by this man that uh, went to the University of Minnesota and was a big football star from Cresco. And he convinced him to go up to the University of Minnesota and, and you could maybe play in the football team. And, and for whatever reason, Norm changed his mind. And because of that, there's another one of those coincidences that if that wouldn't have happened, you know, he probably would have been a great science teacher and coach, but instead he went to the University of Minnesota, which was a loss for Iowa, of course. We always kind of joke about that. So he went to the University of Minnesota and he was always interested in plants. And so that's where his emphasis went into the science area. And he majored in uh, forestry. And so he was finishing up. Uh, this is now in the early 30s during the Great Depression. While he was there at school, you got to think about what college was like for, for Norm. It was during the Great Depression. Uh, you had to have a job in order to eat. There was no cafeteria for you could just eat as much as you want like they do nowadays. He yeah. had to find work so that it would make it possible that he could feed himself. And so he worked at a sorority serving tables. And then he even got a little job part-time at fast food place, White Castle, that's so well-known in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. He did this just so they could have like White Castle. He's, he had free hamburgers that way. So you had to work your way through. And it was during the Great Depression. There was uh, in one of the books that I read about how he was going to down toward uh, Dinky Town or whatever it was in downtown Minneapolis. And there was a, a riot going on. There was a, this unrest where the farmers were complaining about prices for their milk. The factory, they wanted, there was a, a big standoff and a riot developed and, and Norm had to get the heck out of there. There was fighting all around him and people were getting their heads bashed in. And so he got, he got out of there. And it, he said how that just, it changed him. He came from, you know, a farm that they always had enough food to eat, but now he was in a place so foreign from what he was used to growing up in. And he saw this, he saw what happens when people are desperate people and they don't have the, the food to eat and the, the necessities that you need in life. And so that stuck with him too. So all of these little things that happened to him throughout his, his lifetime, from being on the farm, working hard to the schools, what he learned, and then the University of Minnesota. So he goes on and gets to, he's getting close to getting done with his forestry degree and has a job lined up when he graduates with the United States government in the forestry department, either working in Massachusetts or out where he'd done a, an internship out in uh, Idaho in the forests. At the University of Minnesota, he had met his future wife, uh, Margaret, and they decided they're not going to get married until he has this job. Well, they did get married because he had this job lined up, and then the job fell through uh -huh. because of the depression. And so then they said, what are we going to do, Margaret? And so he had gone to a lecture by this plant pathologist instructor, Stakeman was his name, 
And Professor Stakeman was very influential to Norm. Uh, Norm, since he didn't have this forestry job, he decided, well, I'm going to go back and get some classes. What should I do? So he went to Stakeman and asked him, what should I do? And he says, should I get into plant pathology with the forestry as the uh, the main the emphasis? And Stakeman says, no, no, you should you should get a broad general plant pathology degree, which is working with genetics is what plant pathology is. And so Norm took that to heart and he went through master's and would end up getting his PhD in uh, 42, I believe it was. Uh, the war broke out. He was needed in the science field to help with coming up with uh, products that could be used in World War II. And so he did that for the DuPont company out uh, east and he had a good job. He and Margaret were now doing all right. But he, there was the Rockefeller Foundation that was exploring the possibility of having a cooperative venture with the Mexican government near Mexico City. They wanted to try to help the, the government of Mexico to help them with growing more food because they were having to import so much of their grains. The farmers were just not functioning very well. They were farming with farming practices from the last 200 years. They didn't use fertilizers, no rotation of crops, all, all these different things. And so uh, Rockefeller Foundation decided they're going to go to Stakeman, his old professor, and ask, are there some young scientists that would be willing to maybe go down to Mexico to start some programs down there to work with the government, but also with the farmers? And Stakeman approached Borlaug, who he thought Borlaug was his brightest student and asked Norm and Norm agreed to go down to Mexico. And so that's how Norm, and it wasn't just Norm, there was a team of young scientists and this Harar who was in charge of uh, getting the team together, then sent this team down to Mexico and they worked near Mexico City out in the highlands of Chapingo, where the research facility was. And that's where Norm got his uh, beginnings in Mexico. So that's how he ended up going to Mexico. Why he went there when he had a cushy uh, laboratory job with DuPont, I think it, it goes back to all of those things that he saw. He saw the unrest during the Great Depression. He still had that, that hardworking drive, growing food on the farm from his upbringing. And so he left that all behind and went down to Mexico where he was then put in charge of wheat. Wilhausen, I think, was put in charge of corn. Uh, and maize, and uh, there was another one for rice, but he was in charge of wheat, which he had never grown on the farm. I would, you didn't really raise wheat because of the soil was almost too fertile and too wet, and the seasons weren't right. And so Norm went into researching crops that he had never worked with before. And then basically what he did in Mexico was over about a 15-year period of working with wheat and trying to improve it. They'd had to import so much of their grains there. That's what they were trying to have the government help them with. And so he was in charge of this. And basically what he did in a, in a very simple way he is, is he's trying to crossbreed a couple different varieties of wheat to get a better variety. He, there was a, a process of crossbreeding hundreds and then thousands of varieties of wheat that would then grow better wheat grow bigger heads and, and all of that. Tom? And so, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's time for our first break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important words. Explore the amazing life and legacy of Dr. Norman Borlaug by visiting the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation Farms at 19518. 
200th Street and 20399 Timber Avenue in Cresco, Iowa. Dr. Borlaug saved over a billion people from starvation on this planet. Bring your family, bring a friend and come on down to learn more about why they love to educate people about this great man and his legacy. For appointments, directions, and attending scheduled events, visit them at normanborlaug.org. You can email the foundation at nbhforg at gmail.com or call at 563-547-3434. You'll be glad you did. I'd like to talk about volunteering, especially as a way to help your growing family. As we all know, there are a million things to accomplish and only 24 hours a day to do so. Many people have no idea how to find time to commit to their local museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society. But it's a valuable investment in the community and your family on many levels and something that you'll need to make work to realize the benefits. Why does it matter to you personally to get involved in your community? Well, if you're a business leader, it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the local business community. By doing so, you not only do your part to support local causes, but also stay aware of opportunities to grow your company. While there are a variety of ways to accomplish this, including social media, newspapers, television, social circles and networking, there is no better way than to build relationships by engaging yourself in these valuable organizations within the community. However, if you're raising a family and seeking to train your kids in the life lesson, quote, to do well for your community by doing good, unquote, then it's imperative to immerse yourself and your family in helping the community and having fun while doing so. Maybe you've wondered, how can I volunteer in my community, but still have a lot of fun? If so, being a volunteer at a museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society could be for you. You'll find great opportunities to work with children in order to pass on knowledge and history. Not only do you get to teach the next generation of kids some valuable life skills and information, but you also get to enjoy the activities while teaching them. Volunteers typically help guide visitors, answer questions, answer phones, perform research, help file, work with children, and a huge number of other things that keep the society running smoothly. You also get to attend the events and learn more about your community so that you can pass this on to your family and friends. Your family will get a sense of belonging, a sense of place. For those who say they don't have time to volunteer, time is secondary. People with a family and other obligations can generally give just a few hours a week. You don't have to volunteer for hours and hours of time. You can start by micro-volunteering with a shift between one to two hours. These societies host a variety of fun activities to bring members and non-members together. These organizations are non-profit organizations, meaning that they have very few staff members on the payroll and rely on volunteers to assist with the rest of their activities. There are always things to do, and if you strike up a conversation with any of them, they'll be happy to help you find something that you will love doing and that helps your family and community. It's an exalted feeling to volunteer your talent, plus the people you spend your time with and the experiences you gain are invaluable. 
There are literally thousands of people from all walks of life who volunteer their time, energy and resources to museums, cultural, historical and genealogical societies all across the country. If you enjoy books and quiet, the research library is the perfect place for you to volunteer. You will get to organize books and perform research tasks to help others document their lineage. You can be involved in digitizing records and photographs. You can enter records into a database or help the curator. These societies can offer many different activities for you to engage and help by doing something you love. Museums, cultural, historical, and genealogical societies generally work closely with community members, schools, and businesses. They often host events and fundraisers to bring information to the public and improve the success of the area. You can help improve your community by giving back to these organizations that make your community a better place to live. One of the most beneficial and perhaps underrated perks of starting your volunteer journey is the example it sets for those around you. Within your circle, volunteering is phenomenal for the wellness of your community, as you're demonstrating that helping is a core value. From your family members and friends to anyone else in your circle, your efforts to make the time and commit to your community won't go unnoticed. They will set a positive tone in your circle and instill a sense of direction throughout their lives because they will be at the heart of the community. Please consider volunteering with your family today. You'll be glad you did. This is Bruce McEwen, the chieftain of the Caledonian Society of Hawaii, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe in Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Scotch Perkins by Simmers, full of goodness, full of ginger and spice and all things nice. Make sure your friends and family enjoy Scotch Perkins. Oven Fresh by Simmers. At Preservation Oaks, we love history. We are very grateful for our historical and genealogical society guests who share interesting history and information about their society, their current needs, and about what makes them unique. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email Preservation Oaks at gmail.com. Thank you. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Mr. Tom Spindler from the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation, located near Cresco, Iowa. For this segment, we'll focus on the foundation's role in the community, what kinds of outreach events and education the foundation undertakes. But before we get there, Tom was giving us a very interesting history of Dr. Borlaug. Tom, you want to continue? All right. Thank you, Sean. Yes, he was uh, now raising, uh, going through the research facilities of uh, raising the wheat and crossbreeding that, taking one variety, demasculating it, covering it up, uh, and then you, you pollinate it with another variety that you want, with the idea of trying to have better wheat. Now, what he was first trying to do is to get rid of this disease that was uh, prevalent in, in wheat crops and had been a problem from the days of Jesus back 2,000 years ago. And that was the problem of the rust disease. And that's a fungus that uh, flies through the airstreams and then will, in the summertime, will drift down and get onto the plants 
and will actually rot the plant and turn it, uh, the, the stems of the wheat plant uh, rust colored, and then it would uh, spoil the, the wheat. And this was a, a major problem. And so what he did in his crossbreedings was trying to, you know, with his crosses, finding the ones that seem to be, have a little resistance to it, and then saving that, throwing the rest away, starting with the other varieties and crossbreeding those until that resistance to the disease of rust was eradicated. So that was one of the things that he did with his crossbreeding. He was able to alleviate the, the disease of rust that then later on through his green revolution spread across the world and actually got rid of the disease of rust in the world for the next 50 years, wow. which was a huge, huge breakthrough. The other things he did with trying to improve the yields is that the, the wheat through his fertilizing got to grow too tall. The, the stems of the plants were not strong enough to hold up the, the heads that were getting larger and larger. And so he got some dwarf wheat seeds, semi-dwarf wheat seeds that came from Japan after World War II. A scientist uh, had got a hold of some and sent him some in uh, Mexico, in which he then he crossbred that wheat. And what he ended up doing is he started growing the wheat shorter. And the energy that went to, to grow that wheat went more into the heads, the, the seeds, the, the spikes uh, of the plant, and then the, the stems were half the size. And so if you look at pictures of Norman Borlaug now, uh, you know, the old pictures of him in the wheat fields, the, the wheat is growing, the heads of the wheat are growing right around his waist instead of up by his shoulders. Yeah. And by doing that, it kept the wheat from falling over in the hot winds with the, with the, and it was easy, easier to harvest the crop. So that was another thing that he did. The other thing that was kind of a, an accident, and that was he was having success in, in, Mex in near the Mexico City area, which was up about 6,700 feet in elevation. But he heard about a, a dilapidated abandoned research facility up in the northern part of Mexico, uh, in the Sonora Valley, uh, in the Shiaki Valley, it was called. And it's only like 300 miles from Tucson. And he asked his boss if he could go up to that region and maybe check it out and see if that's a possibility that we could grow wheat up there. And what was nice about that, it would be a completely different growing season. And so he did that over the next few years after they begrudgingly gave him the okay to do that. And so he would take the best seeds that he got from the highlands of near Mexico City and take them up by truck. He had to, there were no roads to this area. So he had to go back up into the United States up near Tucson and then back down along the other wow. side where there was a road to the Shiaki Valley. Wow. And there he found this old dilapidated building where they used to have a research facility. And uh, he had all this, the seeds from down south uh, in he was going to have to plant that, but there was, there was no equipment there. All he had was his pickup. And so what happened was he went out there and uh, planted them by hand. He had to cultivate it by hand. All of these things he had to do by hand. And so he was there all by himself. He had to stay at that facility. And so he s slept on the floor on a mat and uh, had a little cook stove in which uh, this woman took pity on him and would drive him into town once a week to get some hands of beans or whatever. And uh, this is how he, he lived in the summer. He just, and there were mice and rats around the place. And yet he 
spent all that time away from his family in this growing season and he planted all these new crops and then he crossbred all this himself did this with nobody else around the farmers in the area were kind of they looked at this who's this crazy gringo that's you know what's he attempting to do yeah, exactly. and then what he did at the end of that season he would show the farmers in the area what what he was doing and they were very suspicious and they and they were not going to do what he said but he he did have later on after a couple of seasons he would have a way of being able to get them in was to have this they he'd offer them beer and then he'd show them the different crossbreedings and how this is working <laughs> so what what he did then is he then would take the best seeds that he got from up north and then he'd take them back to the highlands of near mexico city and he did this back and forth and he said to the rockefeller foundation he says look at i can get two growing seasons in one year and we can quicken the pace of what we're doing here and so what he did over those years is what they now call shuttle breeding. And they said this couldn't be done. Scientists said in those days, you, can't, you cannot grow wheat that's growing in the highlands of, of Mexico that has different sunlight and different climate and grow it in the Yaqui Valley, which is at uh, sea level, mm -hmm. and it's much hotter and drier. And yet, you know, what he did, the accident was that he bred into this wheat that he was going back and forth with and finding out that this wheat could grow in the lowlands, could grow in the highlands, could grow at different sunlight variations. And uh, so this wheat then became the super wheat in which they could grow nearly anywhere. And then on top of it, the uh, heads were getting larger because of his crossbreeding. So there was more wheat that was growing. The disease of rust was gone. And so over this period of 15 years, from about 44 to 59, he had done all this breeding to the point where the crops were now very successful. Mexico went from uh, importing a lot of their grains to they were now able to get good prices for their crops, but also export. They were growing so much. That's what I think is very cool about Dr. Borlaug. He worked by himself for the most part for 15 years to accomplish this. And he sort of worked in the background and yet he accomplished something that changed the world. That's right. And through his, his work, what he did in the wheat fields is not only that, is after he was having this success, is he encouraged governments to send young scientists over from different parts of the world to come and see what he's doing in the wheat fields. And then he would work with them. He says they, they weren't going to work in laboratories. They had to work in the fields like he was doing with these crossbreedings, working from what I understand from dawn to dusk. And so it was, uh, he was just an extremely hardworking person. And he did, he taught that to the scientists. Then he would give them those packets of seeds, take them back to your, to Afghanistan, take it back to Iran, take it to uh, Turkey, to Egypt, to all these different countries of these scientists from around the world. And from there, you will be able to grow this. And then of course, after these successes, you know, he's it's getting very well known and he decides it's time to try to help Pakistan and India who are going through famines, uh, not able to grow enough food for their people. He went to the governments and had to cajole and, and convince the scientists, the government uh, entities that Mexico has the seed. We can get you the seed. If you will try this, uh, you will have success. And they were very doubtful that you could grow the same seed and, and the bureaucracy was in the way. But 
you know, he was such a bulldog with his perseverance about convincing these people that if you can do this, just try it, try this, and we will give you the seed. And so they begrudgingly did that. And, and so they hauled the seed in cargo ship and uh, took it to Pakistan and India. There's a lot more to the story than that. But they did try this in their research fields. And um, Norm warned them, he says, you know, we've developed the technology with this wheat. All you need to do is plant it and uh, you'll see. But he says, what it took us 15 years to develop in Mexico, you will be able to do in just three years. But you better build some uh, uh, storage facilities because you're going to have so much grain, you're not going to know what to do with it. And they didn't. They didn't follow that, uh, but they they did have the success. And nice. he said it just uplifted their lives. And so much grain was grown that now the monsoon season was was coming and they had they had to store the grain and it, they just left it out on, on the ground. There was never a problem with storage there. And so they ended up closing schools for a while and stored the grain in there because they didn't have the storage facilities. But uh, they were expecting tens of millions of people to uh, die of starvation there in the late 60s. And he turned that around and he was right. It just took them a few years before they were able to be food sufficient for all of their huge populations that they had in those countries. Pretty incredible. And for that, that, Sean, is how he won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, not for being an agricultural scientist, but as a, uh, a humanitarian that brought food to a starving world. And yeah. so that's where he got the Nobel Prize in 1970. Now, he won over 50 awards and honors worldwide. Did you ever meet Dr. Borlaug? I did have an opportunity to, to meet him three different times. I was a teacher in Fresco, and I, had, I taught fourth grade at the time. And I remember taking my kids, uh, I asked the principal, who is on our foundation board now, uh, Shirley Sovereign, if I could possibly take my fourth graders down to meet him. He was speaking at a um, fundraiser for our foundation to help put on a roof on, on our house, on the Sears house. And so I got to go down there and uh, meet him in person. And then the fourth grade kids all got to meet him, shake his hand. We all had pictures. So he signed all their Autograph pictures, and and then we took pictures, and he he sat with us. It was a very special time because you know he was there speaking to adults, and they had this twenty five dollar plate meal. Here he was. He says, "Ladies and gentlemen, you have to excuse me a few minutes. I got some young people I want to talk to." And um, he, that was that was his favorite thing to do. Is he loved talking to kids because he knew that that's the generation that's going to be coming. That's going to be the ones that are going to be the next Borlaugs. And so that was a special time. I, I met him two other times too with the farms. And one time, you know, when he knew that I was a teacher, he, he had said, when are you going to get somebody to come down to the World Food Prize? We need to have a student from, from Cresco that can come down. And I said, I'll work on that, Dr. Borlaug. <laughs> he was, when you, when you meet uh, Dr. Borlaug, he was truly what they all said. Everyone that met him felt that they, they would have a personal connection with him. He was so engaging. He wanted really to know what's on, going on in your mind. Like when those little fourth grade kids would shake his hand, he'd say, and he'd, he'd uh, point at his forehead and his eyes. And he says, you look me in the eye right here and give me a firm handshake. And he says, that means you mean it. And so <laughs> those kids were just kind of wide eyed. And I remember the one boy getting back in the bus that day. He says, I'm never going to wash this hand again. <laughs> yeah. 
that had to be a good feeling. That was. It was. Listeners, sometime when you have a moment, go to your favorite bookseller and do a quick search for the term Norman Borlaug. You'll find a lot of great books from this man or about this man by other authors. Tom, did Dr. Borlaug publish many books? You know, he didn't. I don't think he did. There probably are some uh, science technical books that he did, but I'm not, I haven't read any of those. But, you know, to tell you the truth, that man was so focused and driven toward just his crops and growing enough food for the world that he didn't have time to sit down and be able to just write an autobiography or whatever it happened to be. He would write lots of articles for publications that would then go out to the science world and the world in in general. So he was very active with that when he had the time, but it was uh, more other people that were writing about him. There's lots of people that uh, knew him, you know, from the science area that wrote about him. There's books that I've read. There's a book going back in the 70s by Leonard Bickle called Facing Starvation. That was back, he was from Australia. That was 74. My favorite author is the man that I've gotten to know that was writing the books, uh, the biographies of uh, Norm about the time that Norm died, just before he died, and then right at about the time he died. That's Noel Beatmeyer. Uh, there's three books, there were a series of them, and then he condensed them. There's volume one, two, and three. One's uh, about his life on the farm, that's volume one and about going to college and all that and his experiences. And then there's uh, volume two about his days in, Mex- in Mexico and what he did to transform the wheat. And then the third one is about his days in India and Pakistan and how he, he changed all that. So that's Noel Vietmeyer, V-I-E-T-M-E-Y-E-R. Those are great books. Then he wrote a condensed version of those three and it's called Our Daily Bread. And that's about uh, the, the essential Norman Borlaug, it's called. Leon Hesser wrote a great book about, uh, and he was a scientist friend of his that worked with him over in, uh, I don't know if it's Pakistan or India, uh, Hesser, and that was called Man Who Fed the World. There's one that was, that's very recent that's written by Charles Mann, the guy that wrote uh, 1491 and also a follow-up, 1493, about Columbus coming to America and how that changed everything. Very well thought of author. He just wrote about five years ago, a book about uh, the wizard and the prophet about, and it's about these two scientists, Borlaug and Vogt. I think V-O-G-T is the other guy that, and the juxtaposition of growing enough food as to the environmental concerns. And so that's a good one. There's uh, children's books too. There's a new one coming out in beginning of September by Peggy, uh, Thomas that's from uh, Feeding Minds Press and it's it's I think it's meant for more adolescence it's a, a hero for the hungry life and work of Norman Borlaug there's there's other children's books too that are very good lots of books written about him very cool very cool Dr. Borlaug he worked with wheat to begin with but then he worked with other plants too right Yes. You know, after he had his successes in Mexico, and then he wins the Nobel Prize in 1970, he now realizes in 70, his life has changed forever because now he's, he's got this title. But he and his, and he wasn't working alone in Mexico. He had a team of scientists that were all working on all the cereal crops. You know, you got rice, corn, and wheat. Those are the three main ones. There's barley and oats and things like that. But he would then after his successes, he was being sought now for his advice and knowledge and how you go about doing things. And so he worked with 
governments from various continents and countries, China, Indonesia in the Southeast Asian part, South America countries. And then later on his life, he worked in, in Africa in the last 25 years of his life. But he worked at the same thing like in China. He's in textbooks over there because of his work with rice. They, they have a rice institute over there, much like they have in Mexico for wheat. And so they did the same thing with rice the, through the crossbreeding process and dwarf made it smaller so that there's more energy going into growing the, the rice itself. Nice. So yeah, he worked with all the different crops. He worked in, toward the end, uh, worked with maize in, in Africa and working with small, small farmers and small stakeholders that are trying to just grow enough for their little tribes and their, their individual people. So yeah, he worked with uh, many different ones, but most of those, as he's getting older, were as an advisor. Yeah, he had makes plenty sense. Of, plenty of scientists are doing his work now that uh, he had had his successes. So he had, as they called his scientists that came and studied and learned from him and then went back, those were his wheat disciples in the early <laughs> days. And then it was all of it. It was the Borlaug scientists that are known from around the world. If you got your training through a Borlaug person that that's stay says quite a bit about you. So they're sought after. Nice. Now he started an award called the world food prize. Is that still active and what's it for the world food prize? So after he got the Nobel prize, he went to the Nobel committee and he said, you need to recognize, uh, you know, you should be recognizing science and agricultural people that are doing things to promote the food in the world. They told him that they can't do that because Alfred Nobel in his uh, will stated it in so many terms. Now he got that award, not for his agricultural science work, but as being a great humanitarian of right. bringing this seed around the world. So that's, and so he decided, well, we need to have a Nobel Peace Prize for agriculture, for food production. And so he started that along with John Ruan, who uh, was a philanthropist, had a, uh, a very successful business in Des Moines. And so from there, starting in, I think it was 85 or 86 is when they started the World Food Prize. And then it's been going on now for 35, 37 years or so. Nice. That's very cool. It recognizes one or two people a year, and they, they're given a $250,000 award for improvements in food production or anything having to do with helping out the world with the food supply. Is there a place on the web where you can go and see who is winning these awards? Yes, you go to the World Food Prize. All you'd have to do is type in WFO or World Food Prize dot. I don't know if it's org. I'm not sure. Okay. And they have a site that you can go to, and they usually announce it. Uh, the World Food Prize is always held in October. He also uh, started the uh, Youth Institute, which is part of the World Food Prize, and where kids are, you know, because he always loved uh, working with young minds to, they, they can write a research paper that's connected with a third world country with a food issue. And then they get to go down and present to all these scientists and dignitaries from around the world, this world food prize, they'll have 60 or 70 different countries represented, whether they're, they could be uh, secretaries of agriculture in their, in their countries, or they have prime ministers, and they have scientists from all over, from all the different continents. And so then these kids, they can get to present to these very smart people. So it's uh, 
great success. And COVID kind of knocked that down for the last couple of years. So they've had to do it remotely, but I expect that it's going to be on for this year. I'll look it up. I'll try to look it up on YouTube and see if they have videos of the presentations and those kind of things. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can provide us with an overview of your foundation. So we've learned that Norman Borlaug was a great man, a great scientist, a humanitarian. He won some prestigious awards and he wasn't a mad scientist messing around with the genes of wheat or any of that. He was a guy that just took different varieties of wheat and crossbred them. And now you start a foundation. Can you tell us about your foundation? Well, first of all, yes. Uh, Norm, as an older man, he started our foundation. Actually, you know, he's busy working around the world and, and advising and he's, he's older. So he put uh, his uh, nephew, Ted Behrens, in charge of formulating a board. And what he did is he deeded over the properties that we now take care of. There are two farm sites. There's the birthplace farm and the boyhood farm that are just kitty corner from each other, three quarters of a mile away, connected through the fields that Norm would have farmed as a youngster. So our foundation members are all volunteers that are, most all of us are from this area of Northeast Iowa. We have a lot of, probably half of us are educators. We have some current uh, educators, but some retired, some uh, administrators. We have a professor at a, at a university. Uh, so we have about half of them are educators. We have other community and business people from our region. There's some family members that are not necessarily, they might not be first cousins, but they are, you know, like second, second cousins or grand nephews uh, that are part of our foundation. We want to try to make sure that we try to have family members that are part of it since they are the ones that, you know, are from that ancestry. And so we have like a 20, I don't know what we have, 22 maybe now on our foundation board. That's great. And so your foundation, what's the mission of the foundation and what kind of things does it do? Basically, we have two main points of our mission, and that is to preserve the farms. When Norm deeded these farms over to us, he was not interested in having a museum to honor him. He wasn't interested in that at all. He knows that from his upbringing, that that was so important to him, from the one-room schoolhouse to the growing up in the farm and that hard work and that fascination with growing things and the soil and all of that, it was important to him. And so that was focus that we want to make sure that we preserve these farm sites and try to put it back as best we can to the time period of when he would have been a boy growing up. And so that's the 19, late 1920s is what we're, we focus on there. And so that's the one point and the second one, of course, is education. And education was so important to Norman. And he realized that the, the generation that's coming next are the ones that are going to be the next Norman Borlaugs. And so our focus is very much education, whether it's to the audience that we're talking to today, to a group of garden club members or sons of Norway or individual families that want to come. But we strive to educate as many as we can. And so we work with school groups. Right now we have, we've had high school uh, groups that come, uh, middle school ones. We have two Inspire Days that we're very proud of. Got started about uh, the first one. Eh, I'm guessing that's probably going back almost 15 years now. And that's 
our fall inspire day that we have Iowa state personnel that come up and do lessons with uh, the fifth grade kids from our region. We have schools that uh, we can reach out to that are probably as much as 50 miles away. I don't think you can really go too much farther than that. And so they get to come to the farm site. And then we have uh, Iowa state personnel. We've had university of Iowa people, uh, Viterbo college in Wisconsin, the community college area ones that are nearby. They come and do science and global lessons, anything from there's even music and and art that has come out of that. I was going to ask, in the foundation, you may have land, and do you have land, and are any of the students doing crossbreeding? No, we're not doing anything like that, but that would be something in our future that we'd love to have done. The, The property that we have is, you know, we've got... It's about 130 acres altogether when you count the woods and the fields and the, and the uh, properties of the farm sites. The students that come there, and we have uh, Iowa State uh, interns that come each year. It's called uh, Borlaug Thompson uh, Internship Program from Iowa State. One of the best internships they have from there. They, they get a paid well and a scholarship. And so we get one every year. So we have a, a young man this year that's coming that was an Eagle Scout project and did a, a signage for us uh, on farm that uh, helps to, you know, a sign that says you're here at the Norman Borlaug farm. And he's now going to be our Iowa State intern this year. And he's going to do a, many different projects. He's uh, in the engineering school and in, in the ag engineering, and he's hoping to do uh, some updating of projects of fixing up the buildings and things like that. So yeah, but we do have the the Inspire Days in the fall and in the spring. We have Luther College involved in the spring. So we have oh, probably about 500 kids, I suppose, that come to the farm sites each year. And then on top of that, we have educational outreach. I'll, I'll go speak to groups. Uh, I have a winter home in Arizona. I even spoke to senior citizens in a on uh, Norm's life, just like I'm doing today. That's uh, nice. Sons of Norway, we have, uh, I'll go to schools. I've even been to the Norman Borlaug Elementary School in Iowa City, Iowa, to talk to those kids to tell them who Norman Borlaug was. I mean, that's, oh, it's pretty, that's when they great. were building that school, they named that school after that because they asked the kids, you know, let's do some research as to who should we name this building after when they were building it. And they, they decided on Norman Borlaug. Nice. Hey, Tom, it's time for us to take our second break for a few minutes. All right. All right, listeners, we'll pick up where we left off right after these messages. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. You're listening to Preservation Oaks, where we celebrate the great work of genealogical and historical societies and give you the information you need to get involved and have fun doing it. Where can you experience the remarkable life and accomplishments of Dr. Norman Borlaug all in a single day? At the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation near Cresco, Iowa. Through his scientific ability to crossbreed plants, this great man created the Green Revolution. This revolution included new farming methods, new varieties of wheat, barley, corn, and other plants which dramatically increased climate adaptability, disease resistance, and crop yields. 
This aided the people of Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, China, and other places across the world in preventing over a billion people from perishing due to starvation. Please donate, evangelize, volunteer, join, and visit the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation. Their mission is to preserve Dr. Borlaug's birthplace and boyhood home and to inspire and educate the public. They hope to empower others through the knowledge of Dr. Borlaug to help solve the problems of providing enough food for a hungry world. For appointments, directions, and attending scheduled events, visit them at normanborlaug.org. You can email the foundation at nbhforg at gmail.com or call at 563-547-3434. You'll have a great time touring the exhibits and learning more about this great man. This is Austin Anders, director of the Dickinson County Historical Society and Museum, and I love listening to Sean Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. Hola. Si es nuevo en los Estados Unidos o es de ascendencia hispana, querrá ser voluntario y apoyar a su sociedad histórica o genealógica local. ¿Por qué? Porque ahora eres parte del tejido de Estados Unidos, y estas sociedades quieren ayudar a contar tu historia familiar y tu historia. Si desea que su cultura se conserve como parte de nuestra historia estadounidense, eche un vistazo a su área y conéctese con su sociedad local. Estarás contento de haberlo hecho. Gracias. Just a reminder about the holidays we celebrate annually in these United States. Armed Forces Day is to acknowledge those still in uniform. Veterans Day is for those who served and have hung up their uniform. Memorial Day is for those who never made it out of their uniform. Please teach your children to observe these days each year. On Preservation Oaks, we understand that every museum, cultural and heritage institution, historical and genealogical society has a story to tell, and our mission is to help share that story and the value of your organization. When you appear as a guest on Preservation Oaks, you unlock and share your story with worldwide listeners. We have listeners across the United States, Malaysia, France, Germany, South America, Canada, Russia, the United Kingdom, and other countries. If you're interested in being a guest on the program, send an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. We're proud to help tell your stories, one valued organization at a time. Hello my plebes. This is Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile. While I'm waiting for Mark Anthony, I'm listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Mr. Tom Spindler from the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation located near Cresco, Iowa. I've learned so much about this great man, Norman Borlaug, Dr. Norman Borlaug, and the work he did. It gives me a completely new perspective on the need for crop yields to increase 
and the critical need to save the planet from future starvation. Thank you for the information you've provided to our audience about Dr. Borlaug and the Heritage Foundation, and welcome back. Yes, thank you. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background? How'd you get involved in this foundation? You know, I'm 70 years of age now, so back about, oh, I suppose I was in my early 50s, uh, I was contacted by one of the founding board members for the foundation. He knew that, you know, in my classes that I taught a unit, uh, you know, I was studying Iowa studies and we studied famous Iowans. And so I had kind of researched about Norm. And, you know, when I first moved to town, you know, there's his statue right there in the down by the stoplight in the main drag. And, and so I've gotten a little more and more. So this man, Ken, talked to me about, uh, he says, would you have an interest in, in joining the board? I think the board was looking to expand education. And so I said, I'd be honored to be a part of that. And so when they asked what I would like to be involved with, I said, well, education, you know, and so that's how it all started. And I had no idea that I would become so involved with with the foundation and doing what I'm doing. But it has certainly been a labor of love. And when you hear Norm's story and to, to know what this man did in his lifetime, it's just nothing short of incredible. And he is he is obviously a hero of mine and should be of every person that has food in their mouths. So He's a hero of mine all. now, I'll tell you that. I had yeah. never heard of, of Dr. Borlaug before, but he's well, you know, and this my is hero. this is what's you know, it's it's sad to, to know. We realized that Dr. Borlaug, he died in two thousand nine. That memory of him is going to fade over time unless we try to keep that legacy alive. And that's what our, you know, we're educating because we want to, you know, we're honoring this his uh the man and his legacy. And so that's that's why we are all uh, on the board and we're all focused on trying to keep this memory alive. And, and that's why we call these school days Inspire Days. Maybe the National Education Foundation could help get some of his information into their mm-hmm. education materials that they distribute across the country. I don't know, but there's only so much of one person can do. But, uh, you know, that I would love to see that. We've talked about maybe getting all the, you know, biography of Borlaug in every library, yeah. at least in Iowa and Minnesota, where he's so, you know, his roots came from. But, you know, he's larger than that. But yeah. here he is in our, in our own midst. And if you ask people that come to the farm sites, uh, you know, do you know, have, have you ever heard, like, when I went to the speak to the Luther Students are going to be teaching uh, the fifth graders here just at the end of this week. Uh, they're they're going to be teaching future teachers. They're getting ready to go out and student teach. Nice. And so I was preparing them for their coming to the farm. They're going to do science and global lessons with the uh, fifth graders. And I asked them, how many of you had ever heard of Norman Borlaug? And it was one person in the class that raised their hand. Yeah. And so amongst our own people that live here in Iowa, we don't know who this man is. Well, I hope we don't forget him. What's coming up on the horizon for the foundation? Where are you headed next? Our, our grand, the, the thing that we always have been since the very beginning was to to have an endowment of like five to seven million dollars so that we can build a permanent visitor center that has maybe a dormitory set up and 
that where we can do educational kind of things, but also like you had mentioned about showing crossbreeding of wheat and not that we're going to be a research facility, but to show students and, and have that opportunity to do science, agriculture kind of things on that site. That's always been something that we always would look toward doing. And that would be, and having an endowment that would be able to sustain this organization forever. And the other one was to hopefully make it a national historic landmark, which I think it should be. I mean, his his importance to us here in our Northeast Iowa and the state of Iowa and in our country, there's not too many that you can put above him as far as what he has done. I mean, you you think of George Washington Carver and those kind of giants of science. I don't think this is anytime soon that we're going to get that, but a national historic landmark is, would be great. As far as what we do in the near future is to try to just expand our offerings to whoever we can reach uh, education-wise. We always have annual drives of funding to keep us going, where when we were just fledgling and treading water, we had a budget of about $20,000 a year, and that included taking care of the farms and all that. So it was it was bare bones, that's for sure. But now we have you know annual fund drives, and we go through grants and partnerships and single gifts and little fundraising things like this Amish man grows wheat on his farm. We harvest that and then we make these sheaves of wheat that are bundled together and they're called Ulenek. It's spelled J-U-L-E-N-E-K. And we sell those as uh, it's there's a Norwegian folktale that has to do with Ulenek about how you feed the birds in the wintertime and you put it on your door. And so we sell those as a little fundraiser that raises money. And the money that we make on that goes to our food packaging events, which are part of our Inspire Days. So that we'll have like on Friday when we have our Inspire Day at the farm in our the birthplace barn, we will be doing a food packaging event done by Outreach out of eastern Iowa. And so the kids will all get to package foods that will be those little bags that are then sent to third world countries. These get sent to Tanzania. And so the kids get a little altruism a little bit. Uh, they're all helping out in their little part. And it's, it has to do with food. So it's all, all about that. So we do things like that. We sell some of those books online, but those are the main things. We, we rely on an annual fund drive now at the, as far as the big endowment. If you certainly wouldn't turn down a million dollars, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. What kinds of exhibits do you have there on display? Yeah, that would be something for uh, the people that are listening. You know, so much that I'm talking about, you can go to our website, normanborlaug.org. Borlaug is B-O-R-L-A-U-G. But on our website, you can see many of these things. You can see the farm sites and you can see uh, what we have there. So what we have for the, the general population that wants to come out there, we don't have personnel that are hired to stay out there. We just, we don't have a budget for that. And so people can come out there and they can use the uh, addresses to get there. And then we have signage, much like you have in national parks that tell Borlaug's story. We have them around the buildings. We have them now inside uh, the house and the schoolhouse. There's the one-room schoolhouse is on the property that was moved to that site many years ago, back 30 years ago or so. So we have uh, in the barn, at the birthplace barn, but we also have them outside the buildings. 
And then also on the walking path, we have a walking path that goes from, you know, the beginnings of the farm. And then you go out into the fields that these would have been the fields that Norm would have farmed as a boy. And then there's the signs that tell the story as you're walking the path. And that's the prairie wetlands that we've established. So it's a beautiful nature walk. This time of the year, everything's kind of matted down and uh, not really growing too much. But you know, by midsummer, we've got all kinds of wildflowers going. Get a lot of monarch butterflies out there. We've got a lot of pollinators and bees. And so you can walk the path and learn about Norm on your own. And you have a little nature walk. The path will take you from one farm site to the other farm site. And so they can see both of them. It's only like three quarters of a mile one way and then three quarters of a mile back and it loops back. And, and so all of those things can be found on our website and can see the buildings and uh, what our one intern did this last year because of COVID, we did a virtual tour. So now that uh, people that are from India or from China, they can go on the, our website and click down through the different, whether it's education or programs or those places, and you can find and take a tour of the farm site. And you can see those signs and you can also see the buildings that are there. And I even, they even have some interviews of me that you can access that are within the building. That's very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I want to remind listeners how to contact the foundation. Of course, the website as Tom mentioned is www.normanborlaug.org. You can email them at nbhforg at gmail.com. If you want to visit the boyhood farm of Norman Borlaug, it's at 19518 200th Street and 20399 Timber Avenue in Cresco, Iowa. 52136. If you want to write the foundation, the address is 101 2nd Avenue Southwest, Cresco, Iowa 52136. The phone number is 563-547-3434. The foundation is an all-volunteer organization and doesn't keep scheduled hours, as Tom mentioned. They can be contacted through the Cresco Chamber of Commerce. That all right, Tom? That's right. Got it. Okay, thank you. So what kind of funding model supports the foundation? Are you part of Amazon Smile? Uh, we are on Amazon Smile, according to our tech person that keeps our webpage up to date. But as far as funding models, we basically are doing our annual fund drive is our main one. And that's, uh, we always have goals of what we're trying to accomplish for the next year. For example, we're redoing the exterior of the school this year and new windows because they're this wood that's on there is from 1865 and right. it's just it's there's not much left of it and then also the finishing up the exterior of the the house that norm was born in so that's like every year we have something different like the, the years before the last two years we went for building shelters that have bathrooms in them so that people that visit there have a nice clean bathroom to use too so it just depends you know each year we're trying to it takes a lot of upkeep for the the buildings oh, and yeah. sites, uh, and so we just try to focus on something that is uh, most of need. And uh, so this year it's the school. So you've got the the Norman Borlaug family home, the school. You have like barns and things. Barns. Uh, there's barns at both sites. The new barn, the barn that we just got done with in 2018, was uh, the barn that his grandparents, the birthplace site. Oh, nice built in I mean, 1915. And so it was a hundred years old 
and it was in bad uh, disrepair. So we decided to do a, a great big uh, fundraising uh, effort there. And through the help of the Iowa Barn Foundation that gave us over $30,000 that got us kickstarted. And then our banks in town were very generous with their donations. And then we uh, finished it up and we had built this barn that was using the same structure of what it was in 1915. And so it's a board and batten, as they call it, which is, is those slats that have little strips in between them that let the air breathe. So, and that's that barn has now become our welcome center for the time being. And so that's where we have signage up there that have to tell Borlaug's story. We have artifact articles of from when he won the Nobel Peace Prize and, and things like that on the wall. And so right now, that is our, our visitor center and probably will be for the foreseeable future unless we have an endowed farm site, that's for sure. That's so that's our main, cool. our main one. We, we now are starting a new piece through the Northeast Iowa Community Foundation, a, uh, an endowment piece that will have one that people can donate to. Uh, like, for example, if you have an IRA, you and you want a tax break, oh, right. and then you can donate to that, and we get the full benefit of it, and and yet they don't have to pay the, the tax on it. So it's a great win-win. We're just starting that, and so that's that's new this year that we've got going. Very cool. But that's about it for the funding model. I think you have an online gift shop on your website. Am I remembering that correctly? No, it's not something that that would be... We do sell the Yulinac and you can go to our site and or and order and we get that to you, but there's no gift shop kind of thing that you okay. can do. But can you order other things like books and can, but that would be where you'd contact our email and say okay. that you're interested in that. Are you doing any holiday celebrations like Fourth of July or any of that? We have our annual in the town of Cresco, we have the annual Norman Borlaug Harvest Fest. And that is late August. It's uh, through our chamber. You can find out information about that at that same phone number and, and address that is for our address. They they do, do have the, the Borlaug Fest and they have a parade and, nice. and activities with that. Are you involved and, in like the county fair? We have a, a little booth that's set up in it's in a little corner of the, the historical building. That's where the people that are passing through can stop and see. And we have some things on display. Absolutely. Do you guys publish a newsletter? We have a newsletter that comes out a couple times a year. Uh, one of our former Iowa State interns is now on our board that is very good about uh, collecting uh, snippets of things that we're doing and uh, news items that are happening. Uh, we have it on our website. So that's another thing that you can uh, go to to find out the a newsletter, but we send it out to all of our potential funders at our annual drive. Uh, usually we send that out, I believe it's like in November, so that it's before the end of the year in case they want to donate to our organization before the end of the year. If I want to volunteer, if I'm in the area, or even if I'm not in the area, I'm somewhere in Wyoming, can I volunteer? And what kinds of volunteer opportunities do you have? Yes, uh, we don't have a uh, an organized way of, of getting volunteers, but we certainly will take anybody. We we had for years, we had the GE volunteers from the GE Corporation that were retired executives and people that go around the country and do a little volunteering for, like they, they told me that they had gone out to Gettysburg and cleaned statues 
but they came to our farm sites because they had a connection with one of our board members and they have been coming, they came for years for seven or eight years or so doing projects of cleaning up buildings, painting, repairing wood, all of those things. But uh, they've, that's kind of, uh, those people have all uh, gone, uh, gotten older and unable to uh, do that anymore. But as far as contacting us, you know, we have, we've got friends and the community, it's a small community. We got a town of 4,000 people. Yeah. We've got in the town of Protovan, which is uh, closer to his farm than we are. The people of Protovan have always been very good about volunteering to help us with projects that need to be done. And so it's just, it's kind of like a word of mouth thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you've got all kinds of maintenance to do, you know, even including yeah. mowing grass. Yes. We've got a need for a lot of different things. It would be great to have enough volunteers to be able to have like on weekends to have the buildings open so that, you know, we can advertise that. And those are all things that we would strive to do. But, you know, just like with any community, you got to be able to find the time to, to do that. And so Absolutely. many of the times for us volunteers, it's people that are retired, which is great. But uh, we, we need to have younger people involved, too. Are you working with Boy Scouts or VFW or the yes. Elks or any of that? Yes. We've had those service organizations, the Kiwanis Club. We've had Lions Club involved. The Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts come out nice. and camp there, but they also will help us out in doing um, uh, little projects. We have our the mission, it's called, in town that comes out every spring. Uh, there are people that are struggling with addictions, and we're there as a, a faith-based uh, organization. They come out and do all the raking and picking up the sticks. They just were there a couple of weeks ago to get the farm ready for our, our Inspire Day that we have coming up on Friday. So we'll take all volunteers. So Fantastic. By the way, I want to compliment you. You guys have a great website. Can somebody join as a member right from the website? As far as being a member, we have charter members that can join for $1,000. We now have on our website a new one that it goes... 5,000, 1,500, and on down the list. So yes, you can, you go to our website and scroll to where you would get to that part. And then you would go through to our email address. Now, do you have PayPal on your website? Yes. So anybody can go there anytime, whenever they've got a moment and donate. Yes, they can. They can do that. That's great. And are you on Facebook or any other social media? Yes, there's Facebook. If you keep scrolling and there's education, there's programs, there's projects, all these things that we're doing. But if you keep scrolling all the way to the bottom, there it shows up. There's Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. You can get these videos of Norm. Fantastic. So if I want to donate, is the easiest method go to the website, go through PayPal, or, or do you have another preferred method? You can do that, or you can uh, ask to be put on our, the list uh, through our email, and, and then we'd send you out an annual fund drive letter. But you can. You can go that way, or you can send a check to the address to the chamber office that takes our mail, and that's 101 yeah. 2nd Avenue Southwest in Cresco, 52136. So that you can send the check right there too. Okay. And if you got any questions, you can call them at 563-547-3434. I know you mentioned your current initiatives, what you're working on, your goals this year. Is there anything else you wanted to say about those? There's all kinds of things that we need that would be very helpful, like to have volunteers that uh, we can have the place open. 
you know, equipment, farming equipment. We need a tractor. We need a skid loader. We need a trailer to haul around our mower and ATV, all those kind of things that we would love to have and volunteers. That's a big need. And it's, it's something that's always something we're struggling with. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation? I know you're well, doing a lot of work with school kids. Right. And that's, I keep going back to that because it's, if we're going to keep the, the support of the, um, of the community, it has to start with the kids. I mean, the, those students that are growing up and become adults in our communities, if they are inspired, you know, as they're growing up, if they learn Norm's story, maybe they'll commit more to the community. Maybe they'll volunteer more. And so that's, I think you have to do that. When you look at the future, it's got to be the younger people that are coming through. Yeah. All of us, it's great that I'm I'm so involved, but, uh, you know, I'm 70 years of age and I can do it for forever. And and so we need to include that. And I think you just do that by communicating to the people in your community from the, the programs and the things that we're doing and that they see that we're viable and maybe they should be involved. And that's uh, and that's what we hope. Yep, that sounds good. Sounds like the right path. Is there any other information or message you'd like the community or your members to know about? There's so many in our community that have never, ever been to our farm site. So I would say you need to come and see it. You need to learn more about it. It's worth your time to be able to learn a little bit more about that. And then you need to spread that message about Norman Borlaug and, and what we're trying to do here. It's good for tourism. And it's a big part of what we're trying to do in this, this area. Yep. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Guys, you can contact the foundation. They have a website, normanborlaug.org. You can email them at nbhforg at gmail.com. The foundation, if you want to visit the farms, then you can go to 19518200 Street and 20399 Timber Avenue in Cresco, Iowa. And if you want to write the foundation, you can write to 101 2nd Avenue Southwest, Cresco, Iowa, 52136. You can phone them at 563-547-3434. And that's where you phone in addition to volunteer, or you can just send them an email and volunteer. And they need volunteers. Of course, they need donations. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to do, so you can be very helpful for the foundation. That's certainly true. Now, before I wrap up, one, I'd like to quote Dr. Borlaug, who said that if the world's population continues to increase, then the world would need to double its current food production by 2050, and that there's not enough land on the planet to do that without clearing a whole lot more forests. There's a quote I'd like to read, and it's from the year 2000, in which he stated, I now say that the world has the technology, either available or well advanced in the research pipeline, to feed on a sustainable basis a population of 10 billion people. The more pertinent question today is whether farmers and ranchers will be permitted to use the new technology. While the affluent nations can certainly afford to adopt ultra-low-risk positions, and pay more for food produced by the so-called organic methods, the one billion chronically undernourished people of the low incomes, food deficit nations cannot. So that's why it's so important for Dr. Borlaug 
to be remembered and for his work to go on. Yes. You should know, listeners, that the current world population is estimated to be somewhere around 8 billion. Tom, I'd like to thank you for taking the time today to help our listeners learn about this great man. And he is indeed very great, and I'm glad to meet you. It's been an excellent experience to sit down and chat with you here on Preservation Oaks. The Foundation does a remarkable job. I have a new appreciation for the work Dr. Borlaug did. It's truly been moving how much he did to help the entire world. And I wish you all the best, much success uh, this week with your event, and continue your great work, okay? Thank you very much, and thanks for the, the exposure. It's, it's worth it. Thank you very much. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Tom Spindler. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Welcome back. I'm very grateful to Tom Spindler for educating us about Dr. Norman Borlaug, his achievements, his work, and for focusing us for just a few minutes on the foundation and world hunger. From this episode, we can clearly understand that Tom Spindler is verifiably an expert on Dr. Norman Borlaug's life and accomplishments. His passion for the mission of the foundation and Dr. Borlaug came through vividly during our time together. The area and the foundation are lucky to have an educator of his quality on the team, and he actually met and collaborated with Dr. Borlaug during his lifetime. The foundation is pretty young, having begun in 2009. They've made a lot of excellent improvements to the Heritage Foundation's properties, including creating a visitor center, albeit a temporary one, public shelters and restrooms, maintaining the buildings on the site, and signage throughout the properties to enhance visitor experiences as they learn about Norman Borlaug. I noted from the website that the foundation seems to just be emerging from the exceptional pandemic time of COVID-19. The website could definitely use a refresh of information and a validation that everything works as designed, but overall, the site has a really good look. The best way to connect with the foundation is to email or call. Also, if there's anyone out there who can donate their time to assist, please connect with the foundation. Per Tom Spindler, the most pressing need of the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation at this time is to have more people volunteer. This is really critical because this will enable the foundation to accomplish more improvements and support for the mission, which is preserving the properties, the heritage, and education about Dr. Borlaug. Volunteers will allow the foundation to have great people at each of the buildings and areas across the heritage site to educate and greet visitors. There are always things to do. If you can help, please connect with the foundation today at nbhforg at gmail.com or just call 563-547-3434. You get to help with the two Inspire Days hosted by the Foundation, as well as other great events. 
The priorities for 2022 of the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation are to expand education offerings to reach as many people as possible. Of course, there's the annual fund drive. There's the annual Norman Borlaug Harvest Fest in the town of Cresco and the foundation participating in that. The foundation is also sponsoring a food packaging event, which will send the created food packages to Tanzania. Continued maintenance of the properties in order to continue operations, preservations, and the mission of the foundation. An endowment fund that people can donate from their IRAs into. And, of course, manning the informational booth at the annual county fair. So if you can help with anything, please reach out. Longer-term goals, the foundation is seeking an endowment fund both to build a permanent visitor center and to support their work into the future. The foundation is working to designate the farm sites in Cresco as a National Historic Landmark. They also need farm equipment. They need a tractor, a skid loader, a trailer that can be used to haul the mowers and other landscaping equipment. These items are really needed. During this episode, we were only able to scratch the surface of the great things the Foundation is involved in. If you visit their website or do a Google search, you'll see a number of items we were not able to cover during our time together. I personally did not know anything about Dr. Borlaug prior to working with the Foundation, doing a bit of research in preparation for this program, and then spending time with Tom Spindler. However, I can tell you, now... Dr. Borlaug is definitely a hero of mine. Dr. Borlaug has been referred to as the forgotten benefactor of humanity. Please help the foundation to ensure that he is not forgotten long into the future. There were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together with Tom Spindler, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you would like more information or you're able to help and volunteer, please connect with the foundation. If you're a listener in the area the Foundation serves, or a listener who can help the Foundation from a different area, please consider joining and supporting the Foundation. It truly is a nationwide organization to preserve and educate our people in the amazing life and accomplishments of Dr. Norman Borlaug. The way to connect with the Foundation. First of all, there's their website at www.normanborlaug.org and Borlaug is spelled B-O-R-L-A-U-G. You can email them at nbhforg at gmail.com. You can actually visit them. They have two properties, one located at 19518 200th Street and 20399 Timber Avenue in Cresco, Iowa, 52136. If you want to write them, you can write them at 101 2nd Avenue Southwest, Cresco, Iowa, 52136. You can call them at 563-547-3434. And just so you know, the Foundation is an all-volunteer organization, doesn't keep scheduled hours. They can be contacted through the Cresco Chamber of Commerce, and that phone number I gave you is actually the Cresco Chamber of Commerce. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Foundation is and what a wonderful mission they have. The Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Martin Shellikins, Ben Nestor, Alina Smirnova, Alexander Nakarada, Raphael Crooks, and Cymbalbird. 
MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Hopes. Thank you.